at Sunday school. And um, the, uh, the idea here is that we're revisiting some Bible stories that we may have learned in our past. And if you were like me and you grew up in a very traditional church, you went to Sunday school, you heard stories, and I was um, telling somebody this morning, it seemed like um, every few weeks, whatever the Bible story was included a craft that had with it cotton balls and glue. I'm not sure why that was. I think it was just on hand, and so whoever my Sunday school teacher was just said, hey, we're going to use more cotton balls and glue. So anyway. Last week I had planned on on doing a particular um, message, and I opted to, to switch and do David and Goliath because it was family Sunday. Um, and so this Sunday I'm switching, and I'm going uh, going back to what I originally planned, which was Noah. Because here, put this up for me. Here, if if you're if you're of a certain age and you had kids, there's a very good chance that your nursery for your children is decorated in Noah's Ark. Because look, I mean, this is so cute. I mean, you've got. You know, the beavers are, are eating a hole in the ark, and Noah's looking. You can't really see him because he's kind of off screen, but all the animals are worried about the, the holes in the ark. And, and in the lower right-hand corner is a little, like, Fisher-Price toy. I'm fairly certain that's floating around our house somewhere. I'm, I think we have, have those, and they're just adorable. And the, the top right one there, that's some wall art that you can get. So you can have an entire wall with with uh, Noah and, and his ark. And, and, it's, and it's sweet and it's colorful and it's a lot of fun. The problem with it is, next slide, this is really what it's all about. <laughs> I didn't want to scare the kids last week, you know, but you've got a lot of carnage. This is a famous woodcut by an artist named Doré, and, and uh, Doré really captures kind of the essence of that story. Um, yeah, that's not one we want to show the kids. And, and we, we tend to take Bible stories and we sanitize them for, for children. Or, or rather, maybe, maybe it's not really sanitizing. Maybe it's de-emphasizing certain things or emphasizing one thing over another. And, and by the way, that's perfectly appropriate. I mean, there's, there's no reason why we should explain you know, the full counsel of God to the smallest of children. Um, I remember uh, uh, several years ago, there was this movie called The Passion of the Christ, which is incredibly violent. And we had some friends in our church and took their little kids to see it. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I just, yes, is it true? Of course it's true. But really, is that how we want them to be introduced to this idea? So it's appropriate for us to, to kind of... Um, uh, sanitize these things to make sure that it's appropriate for children. But as we grow older, we need to take the advice of the New Testament writer, Paul. He wrote this to a, in a letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the, uh, put the ways of childhood behind me. And so we thought it might be a good idea to kind of come back to these these old favorite stories that we may have heard when we were younger and try to take a fresh perspective on them. And so that's what we're going to do today, and we're going to talk about Noah. Now, let me start by uh, explaining kind of how the Bible is constructed. But the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, are what we call primeval history. 
<clears throat> and the best way to describe it is that it's everything that happened before Israel really became Israel. Because in chapter 11, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. And if you remember um, your Sunday school days, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons. See, you know the song, right? <clears throat> and that's when Israel, the story of Israel, begins to gain some traction and to really accelerate. So everything that happens before is what we call primeval history. And my general sense is, is that the author, whoever it is, probably Moses, uh, took those first 11 chapters and, and really tried to help Israel understand where it was in God's creation. And so we see um, a variety of stories, uh, famous stories that are within those first 11 chapters. And, and today, we are going to pick up in Genesis chapter 6. The upshot is Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so it's easy to find, right? So Genesis chapter 6, if you wouldn't mind turning there with me, what, what I'm going to do today is uh, we're going to dig a little bit deep. Uh, not a little bit. We're going to dig deep into the actual text itself. I'm going to read um, portions of the story and then make some comment, and then I'm going to summarize some other parts. Otherwise, uh, we're talking about, uh, I guess, mm, three chapters, and we'd be here till after lunch, and we all want to beat the Baptist to the white meat. So we have to make sure that we kind of summarize it. Yeah, I said that out loud. I'm sorry about that. God bless the Baptist. I love them too. No. Uh, all right, so chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married uh, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, let me hit the pause button because this is the setup for Noah's story. And we start reading and we run smack dab into kind of a problem. Uh, there's some, some words here, there's some phrases here that, let's be honest, could be a little bit troubling. So let's talk about these and kind of break this down. And the first part is that we see is uh, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now, there's quite a bit of speculation about what this means. However, I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, this is the New International Version. Uh, the daughters of humans, the actual Hebrew word here is daughters of men. So let me see if I can break this down a little bit. If you remember the story, um, God formed man, the first man, out of the dust of the ground. So therefore, all of the males are considered sons of God. However, when he created female, he created it from Adam's rib. So all females are daughters of men. Do you see the difference? So sometimes people want to... Um, spiritualize this. They think the sons of God might be some type of angelic being, but in this case, it really is much more mechanical than that. You have the sons of God and the daughters of men. However, we run into a very strange word in the next, next slide. 
the Nephilim. The Nephilim. This is the only time in Scripture that this term is used. Who are the Nephilim? In some translations, you will see it as the fallen ones, which kind of lends itself to this idea of spiritual beings. Do you see that? It's a little confusing. Who are the Nephilim? The fallen ones. It comes from a Hebrew word, uh, means to fall, right? Uh, the root word is to fall. So hence we get this idea, the fallen ones. Problem is, <clears throat> is that that particular word uh, isn't necessarily the word you would use if you were saying um, falling out of bed. Okay, you wouldn't fall that way. Rather, this is the word that you would use to describe a military action, to fall upon. See the difference? It's not necessarily to fall from something, but to fall upon. Uh, you know, the, the, the warrior fell upon his foe. It's a military term, it's military action. And so rather than thinking in terms of the fallen ones, next slide for me, Emily. Instead of the fallen ones, think of it this way, ones who fall upon, ones who attack, ones who engage in adventure, it's the way of thinking about this. And we get a little bit of help later on because we also hear about heroes and men of renown. And the term here for heroes is a classic Hebrew word, gibor, which means warrior. These are the warriors of old, the ones who fall upon and the warriors of old. Men of renown, men of fame, who won fame because of the adventures that they have. So think in terms of, 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 of the framework of this, is this idea of Nephilim have nothing to do with angelic beings, but rather these are heroes. And what's so fascinating is that in the ancient Near East, every culture around Israel had hero stories. In fact, I was in the office uh, this week, and a friend of mine in the office um, looked at me, uh, we, we office with a, uh, it's a, and it's basically like a hotel for businesses. And so each individual office is, is a separate company. And so there's all kinds of people in and out of there. And I was uh, getting some coffee in the break room area. And somebody said, hey, what are you working on today? And I said, after thinking about it for a moment, I said, Sumerian hero literature. And I'm fairly certain that my geek factor went right up <laughs> through the roof. Because I got a, <laughs> kind of a funny look on on their face, but uh, that's what I was reading. See, in primeval history, uh, in every one of these cultures, you had an age of heroes, and it was quite common. In fact, uh, they, they had some common characteristics. First of all, they had long lives. And if you read Genesis chapter 5, you can actually see that in, in Genesis, too, that there, there are these individuals who have adventures and they have long lives. Um, and the adventures that they have, uh, it would almost kind of like the, um, the quality of the American Wild Wild West. There's certain stories that you hear today that helped shape um, that, uh, the culture that we live in, you know, here in Oklahoma. And, and the same thing is true in the ancient Near East. You have these hero stories that really, really helped shape um, those particular cultures as they understood heroes. And so we have to be very careful when we open up the Bible to, to not 
over-spiritualize things. Because what happens is, is we turn them in, into something that's really sensational. And let's be honest, the church doesn't need anything more sensational these days. We really got to um, try to understand things uh, as, as they were originally intended. So we run into this problem in the first part of chapter 6, but it's not too bad, actually. It, it kind of follows suit with the other cultures in that particular part of the world. So let's pick up the story in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Uh, Some translations, I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Larry, Curly, well, no, just kidding. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Yeah, let's pause right there for a second. And notice in verse 5 here, if you're looking at this, um, uh, go back one, Emily, for me. Yep, there we go, in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness was in the world. And this is the growing effects of man's sinfulness. So think about, again, this idea of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. In Genesis 1, God creates. Genesis 3, human beings choose against God. And sin enters the world. And suffering too, by the way. And then in Genesis um, chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And then in Genesis chapter 6, we see this growing sense of evil and wickedness. Later on, we see the words corruption and violence. So as human beings increase in number, as the population increases, so does the amount of evil that's going on in the world. That makes kind of sense, right? We see that, that this is actually happening um, here. And so there's this growing, and the Lord regrets, and so he decides to do a reset, decides to start over. Let me just wipe it out. Let me clean the slate. We're going to start all over again. And then we see this, this little verse in, in, in verse 8. And Noah found favor. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Oh, by the way, um, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem. Shem is contracted to the word sem. It's where we get the word Semite. Remember, sometimes if you read about um, anti-Semitism, people who are against the Jewish people, this is where it comes from. These are the sons and daughters of Shem. Okay? So everything kind of points back to to this moment in time. If you didn't know that, uh, here it is. Semitic people, Semitic languages, all stem from the son of Noah. So now the story um, is a little more familiar to us because God says to to Noah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you and your family, so I want you to build an ark. And if you know the story, there's lots of ridicule. Noah, they think he's crazy. He continues to build this ark, and he gathers up all the animals. He puts them on the ark, and God himself shuts the door, and the rain comes. 
And there's lots of movies that have been made about this. Um, there was one featuring, I think, the actor Russell Crowe and Natalie Portman a few years ago, and I remember talking to a friend of mine who was just incensed. He's just incensed. He couldn't believe that somebody actually made that movie because, let's be honest, Hollywood took a little liberties with the storyline. It's a little different. How many of you have seen this film? Have you seen this one? Yeah, not, not too many. Probably pretty average. Not a whole lot of people did. I don't think it did very well at the box office. Uh, anyway, um, but I was talking to this friend of mine, and I said, hey, look, you know what? What's interesting, though, is a lot of people are now going to the Bible and actually reading the story for themselves. So maybe it's not such a bad thing that <clears throat> Hollywood takes a little artistic license, and uh, people can read it uh, for itself in the ancient text. So uh, we have this flood that takes place. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. I want you to see something. This is really interesting. But God remembered Noah and sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now, there's a part of me that says, I've heard this before. This seems kind of familiar, this term, this word, wording. And so if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, here's what it says. Now, the earth was formless. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Hmm. Interesting to note here that there are two words. In the first one, wind. Next slide. And spirit. In the second are both the same word in Hebrew. Ruach. Ruach means wind or breath or spirit. And here the writer says that he sent a wind over the earth, and when he created the earth, the spirit, the ruach of God, was hovering over the waters. There's this principle. It's called the principle of first mention. And so an author will often uh, take a word or a phrase or an image uh, that's familiar for something previous so that you as the reader connect the two in mind. Make no mistake, what the author is doing is saying, hey, Remember, God wanted to wipe it out and start all over again. So this moment in history where the wind, the ruach, comes and the waters recede, it's like that when the ruach of God was hovering over the waters. Do you see that? you see that connection? And you want to say thank you. Thank you very much to the author for helping us see that God actually accomplished what he was looking for. This event here is a lot like that event back there. And it's a new start. It's a fresh beginning. And it's supposed to sound like when God first started the earth. And so then through Genesis 8 and part of Genesis 9, um, Noah waited for the flood to completely subside. It took a long time. You see, the flood represents a reversal of creation back to watery chaos, right where it started from. It's a complete reset. And I want you to see what, what happens in the aftermath. Genesis chapter 9, um, beginning with verse 7. Let me read this out loud. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. As for you... This is God speaking to Noah. Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Which, by the way, is the same thing that we read in Genesis 1.28 when God looks at the first human beings and says, multiply and increase in number. 
Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So be fruitful and multiply. It's the same thing that he said when he began. And he says he makes a covenant, an agreement. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. We're going to agree on these two things. And never again will I destroy the earth with, with a flood. And what's so fascinating to me is he talks about this idea of a rainbow. The word here in Hebrew is kesheth. And kesheth is the same word that you would use for a hunter's bow. Same word. So he says, I've set my bow into the, cl- into the clouds or into the sky. And, and the point is, is that we, you know, we translate that as rainbow and it makes perfect, perfect sense. But here's what we don't, um, we don't necessarily get originally from the text. In the ancient Near East, if a hunter had a bow, um, he would communicate his intention by how he held the bow. So imagine this. If a hunter or a warrior has a bow and the string is up, that means he can lift the bow, knock an arrow to it, and shoot it very quickly. It's more difficult to do that when the bow string is facing downwards. And so in the ancient Near East, when a warrior walked into a room or into a situation and the bow had the drawstring facing down, it was a symbol of peace. And so here God is saying, I'm hanging my bow in the sky with the drawstring down. It is a symbol of peace between humanity and God, between God and all of creation. Isn't that cool? So every time you see a rainbow in the sky, notice the drawstring is always down. Fascinating. Now, it's interesting to know that there are other flood stories. Noah is not the only one, believe it or not. In fact, um, quick survey, most civilizations in the world have some type of flood narrative, including um, cultures in Southeast Asia, including cultures in um, Central and South America. There's flood narratives. Um, There's a primeval flood narrative as part of their history. Now, we have to be very, very careful because there's no way of corroborating the timing. Just because there's one in the ancient Mayan culture does not necessarily mean that the time frame of that flood coincides with what happened in the ancient Near East. And so we have to be really, really you know, careful about proving anything by looking at these flood narratives. And to date, there's no convincing evidence of a worldwide flood. Many people have tried to put it together, but like I said, and there's some evidence of it, but there's no convincing evidence. And many people have even tried to find the ark without some success. But I think there's something more important here. I think there's something else that's at stake. So I want to keep in mind a couple of things, and, and this is where we're going to get a little more scholastic. Remember, when I look at the Bible, 
This is not just a book, but this is a library of books. And, and there's different authors who are writing to different audiences with different agendas and different purposes for it, and it's all collected into to one, one space. And the further along or further away that we get in time and in culture, the less things make sense to us. Let me see if I can explain this. My dad worked for the phone company. I've said this before. And what was really interesting is that because my dad worked for the phone company, we often had the latest types of phones in our house. We were some of the first people in, in my hometown to actually have push-button telephones. Up until then, we had rotary dials. Sometimes you had a little pencil with a ball on it that you would do the rotary dial. My grandfather also worked for the phone company. And in his basement, he actually had one of the candlestick-like phones where you pulled the thing off and you talked to it like this. And he, he also had a wooden phone that had a crank on it. And you have some of you nodding your heads. You've seen these before. We had these in our homes, okay? Well, we weren't, we weren't using them, but you would talk into it and, and you would click the little thing, get the operator and the operator would connect you. Now, back um, in like the 30s and 40s, there was a big band tune called Pennsylvania 6 5000. And uh, if you listen to it, um, it's got a cool little jaunty tune to it, a little bit of boogie-woogie, and then all of a sudden, it would just stop, and the entire band would drop their horns, and they'd say, Pennsylvania 6, 5,000, and then they would pick up the song again, okay? Now, here's, here's the thing. What we don't realize is that that's a telephone number. Because back in the day, you would click and get an operator, and you would tell them, I need this state, Pennsylvania, and the exchange was number six, and the number was 5,000. Now, the further that we get from that time and place, the less that song makes sense to us, unless you lived through it. Are, are you with me? So that's just been in the last 100 years. Now we're looking at a culture that is 2,000, 3,000, maybe 4,000 years old. And so we have to keep in mind that the further away we get from the culture, the less it can make sense to us. So this is why I often say when we open up the Bible and we look at something, we're tourists. We don't necessarily understand because it's a completely different culture to it. And so we want to make sure that whenever we approach the Bible is that we don't approach it to try to prove something and we're not, we're not there to, 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 to say, hey, this is what I want to know and so I'm going to go to the Bible and try to find something. But rather the controlling question for us is what does the author trying to communicate to these people at this particular time. And once we understand that, then we might be able to get some ideas for ourselves. And so we must hear the Bible in its own historical and cultural setting, because otherwise we're asking the Bible to do more than it was ever intended to do. And so an ancient writer has other ideas as to what's important than maybe what we do. And so here's the question that we have to ask of Noah. What is Noah's story mean to those first readers, to those people who read it for the first time. And then maybe we can figure out what it might uh, teach us today. So the ancient Near East had other flood narratives. In fact, there were three, three major ones. And uh, they all have some common characteristics. Um, they were always within the context of, of a hero story. Um, they all dealt with the gods wiping humanity um, off the face of the earth for 
pretty arbitrary offenses. Like in one case, uh, one of the guys wanted to wipe out humans because he thought they were too noisy. Seriously, they're noisy. Let's get rid of them. Yeah. Um, and in every single story, there was either one or two or three people that would escape the calamity because of some type of deception. They would somehow fool or pull a fast one on the gods. But the implication is clear that the gods can wipe out humanity on a whim and would whenever they got the chance. And so setting the biblical story against these other flood narratives, this wondrous picture begins to emerge. Very different. This God, this Yahweh, isn't arbitrary. It's not because human beings are noisy. Rather, God looks at the corruption and the violence and the evil and the wickedness, and he regrets and he grieves over what he's seeing on the face of his creation, and he realizes that he must act in some way. This God, Yahweh, handpicks a faithful servant to reboot the entire world. There's no deception here. This is God himself picking someone and saying, let's start over. This God also would never again destroy with a flood. There is no promise by the other gods, the other pantheons of gods, that there wouldn't be further destruction. Yahweh promises, I'm not going to do that. There's no threat. And he sets a sign for that agreement that he makes. You see, ultimately, the story that we read about Noah isn't about Noah. And it's not about, it's not about humanity. It's not about archaeology. It's not about science. It's about God and God alone. About his nature and his character in contrast to all the other deities in the ancient Near East. You see, God deals with sin, the sin of humanity. But he also preserves the promise that he made that he would be with us. And so we get a picture into his mercy and into his grace. Yahweh sets a profoundly different course than the other ancient Near Eastern gods. And in this amazing turn, he still does. He does through Jesus. God deals with human sin, not by wiping humanity off the face of the earth, but wiping sin out of the hearts and minds of people through Jesus. So we see this beautiful picture of grace and mercy all the way back in Noah. And we see it again in Jesus and through Christ he also preserves the promise of living with God and eternal life. You know, I don't know where you are today in your own life. I don't know anything that you may or may not have done, but the thing that I believe that Noah tells us today is simply this, that the war bow is hung up in peace because God is graceful and merciful and loves us in ways that we can't even imagine. And that war bow hung in peace, is satisfied by the cross, and is confirmed by an